You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Good morning. Go ahead and pray, and then uh, we're going to get into Deuteronomy this morning. God, we're grateful for uh, your word and the way that you reveal yourself in such a wise way, a way that we can understand, a way that um, we can read, that we can appreciate. Um, And God, we pray that as we look into your word this morning, um, you would shape us and mold us as a people who have been called to be your holy nation. Um, And we pray that um, you would create in us a desire to be the type of community uh, that you are setting out to create as a light to the nations. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we talked about Epiphany as a season in church tradition that celebrates the fulfillment of God's promise to bring light to the nations. And we looked all the way back to Abraham and the Exodus to see that what we celebrate during Epiphany is actually the culmination of all of Jewish history and all of Jewish scripture. Epiphany, which celebrates the Magi as the first Gentiles who recognized Jesus as king, it's such a big deal because this was the reason why Yahweh had selected the people of Israel to be his chosen people in the first place. Everything about the law and the prophets, and we looked at some of those Uh, portions of the law last week. We'll look at some of the portions of the prophets next week. But everything about the law and the prophets points to the idea that Yahweh is selecting his holy nation to be a blessing and delight to the nations by showing them a different way of being. In contrast to what we talked about last week, the fear and the paranoia, the selfishness and the violence and oppression and grasping that characterizes the nations, the story of the scriptures is the story of Yahweh creating a people for himself who will live into a way that is not uh, fearful and grasping, but who will live into the way of righteousness and compassion and justice and peace in order to redeem the nations from their way. But we discovered during our look at Exodus last week that Yahweh anchors his way in worship. Yahweh reveals to his holy nation, he reveals himself rather to his holy nation, not as a king who sanctions the actions of the rich and powerful, but as a king who comes to the defense of the weak and powerless. He reveals himself to humanity as a king who delivers a people who are trapped in slavery from the oppression of the most powerful empire on the face of the earth at that time. He reveals himself as holy through his listening to and his defense of the weak. And then he calls his people to mirror his character by doing the very same things, by listening to and defending and caring for the weak. But he makes it clear to them, he makes it clear to his people that living into his way would only be possible if they remembered what he had done for them. And so as he calls them out of the way of nations, he also calls on them to worship him through, first of all, their remembrance of his power, but also through their remembrance of how he had used his power specifically to come to the aid of the weak and the oppressed. But then having called them into a different way, Yahweh gave the people his law in order to help them understand how his call for them to be holy would manifest itself in specific and tangible ways within their particular context. As you might expect, there were many, many aspects of the law. 
The law addressed their worship, as we mentioned last week. The law spelled out liturgies for how they were supposed to remember who Yahweh was. It created a liturgical calendar with liturgical practices for their worship and remembrance. The law established parameters for sexual relationships and sexual practices that contrasted with the way of the nations. It addressed dietary guidelines. We talked last week about how the law addressed their weights and measures and laid out principles for just economic practices. Their call to holiness was comprehensive. The law issued guidance for virtually every area of their lives. But one of the primary ways that Yahweh reveals his way uh, as holy among the nations is the way that he calls his people through the law to view their property and their possessions. See, among the nations, property was connected to power. Kings seized property to establish their dominion. If they, if they owned land and they could control the people who lived on that land. And so it was common as kings decided that they want to expand their rule, it was common for them also to expand their land as well. But kings also used property to not only establish their dominion, but also sustain their dominion. Property was di distributed among nobles, for example, as a way to build support for the king and as a way to reduce potential rivals to his throne. And so out of this approach to property that was prevalent among the nations, and it actually, sorry to say, eventually became prevalent among the people of Israel as well, and we'll talk a little bit about that next week. But out of this approach to property that was prevalent among the nations, there developed classes of people with some who were extremely rich and powerful because they owned lots of property, and others at the opposite end of the spectrum being destitute and powerless, sometimes even in living in slavery because they didn't possess property. And of course, there were those who lived in between those two extremes as well, but, but those at the lowest end of that spectrum of wealth and property and power were frequently considered, in an ancient context, but also in a modern context, they were they're frequently considered expendable. They could be used up in the pursuits of the kings and the nobles and discarded when they no longer served the purpose of propping up the rule of the king. In fact, that had been Pharaoh's approach to the Hebrew slaves during the Exodus. As long as they were useful, they could hang around and work, but when they became a threat or when they wanted freedom for their own, they either had to be more harshly oppressed so that they'd learn to submit to him, or they had to be destroyed. That's why during the Exodus, Pharaoh does things like increase the intensity of their work by having them go out and find their own straw to make bricks for his building projects. That's why he has their male babies put to death when they begin to get too numerous, in his opinion. That's why he chases them with an army to kill them when they finally begin to get out from under his thumb. What Pharaoh exhibits through the Exodus is really just a symptom of the way of nations where the poor and the foreigner, where those who don't possess power and property are oftentimes seen as simply commodities themselves. There's a very close connection in the way of nations between the lack of land ownership or the lack of wealth, to say it another way, and falling victim to injustice. And it's important for us to understand that because the importance of land ownership gives us a context for deciphering the holy nature of the law that Yahweh gives to his people in order to set them apart from the nations. And so with that in mind, with the idea of land ownership and how it was used among the nations as our backdrop, this morning I want us to spend some time looking at God's law specifically in Deuteronomy. And as we do that, I want us to pay attention against the backdrop of the way of the kings and nations 
to the different way that Yahweh calls his people to think and to live in relation to their land and their property and their possessions. We're going to skip a lot of the detail of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy and miss a lot of the story. I really wish we had time to dig deeper uh, because there's so much that we could talk about regarding the principles of property and the holy nation, particularly in the book of Deuteronomy and the way that it lays out the law. I would strongly encourage you to read through Deuteronomy on your own to discover all that's said in the book of Deuteronomy about, Deuteronomy about the land and the possession and the inheritance that Yahweh gives the people. This is truly a foundational principle in Deuteronomy. But even as we look at this in just a cursory way, we're still going to see that there's something very different about how Yahweh calls his people to live and act with regard to the use of their property. Even in the introduction of the book, there's a contrast made between the way of nations on the one hand and the way of Yahweh on the other regarding their view of property. The book of Deuteronomy begins with Israel's encounter of four nations or four peoples. And as the story unfolds, we immediately see among those four nations that there existed a certain attitude toward their property and their possessions. As Deuteronomy begins, Israel's wandering in the desert because they hadn't trusted that Yahweh was capable of giving them possession of the promised land, despite the fact that he had already conquered the, the Egyptian empire on their behalf. They still hadn't really trusted that this was real. Uh, but as they're wandering in the desert, in the second and the third chapters of Deuteronomy, again, they, they encounter these four peoples that are maybe somewhat unfamiliar to us. And in their encounter with these four peoples, we see a progressive level of selfishness being demonstrated by those four peoples with respect to their possessions because they feared the Israelites who were wandering in their vicinity. We said last week that fear is a catalyst for the way of nations, and we looked at Babylon and Egypt and Herod briefly as examples of that. But these four peoples that Israel encounters while they're wandering in the desert are motivated by that very same thing. They are afraid of the Israelites. The four peoples are identified in the beginning of Deuteronomy as Esau's people, Moab, the people of Sihon the Amorite, and the people of Og of Bashan, who was also an Amorite king. And I know that we're getting into the weeds a little bit with this, uh, but I think it's important to consider these four nations, again, to give us some context for what Yahweh will eventually tell Israel about the use of their land and their property. And I think you'll see that as we get deeper into Deuteronomy this morning. But the first nation that Israel encounters, again, is the people of Esau. The people of Esau aren't particularly hostile toward the wandering Israelites, but they aren't particularly kind to the Israelites either. When Esau's people are introduced, they essentially remain neutral to the needs of these sojourning Israelites. When Israel needs to cross their land in order to continue wandering in the desert, the people of Esau essentially say, look, we'll let you pass through our land and we'll sell you whatever it is that you need, but we're not going to give you any of our property and possessions, not even food and water, unless we can make something off you. The, the people of Esau essentially say, you can pass through our land, but we're not going to help you and meet your needs at our expense. There's nothing particularly noble about the way that Esau's descendants treat Israel. However, because they're not hostile, they're allowed to keep their land. As Israel passes through their land, Yahweh instructs the people not to conquer them. But still, their attitude toward the Israelites is one of fear and suspicion that leads to a relative level of selfishness. They act in a way that's very much consistent with the way of nations that we talked about last week. 
Now, after they encounter Esau's descendants, the second nation that Israel encounters as they're crossing the wilderness is Moab. But in the story of Moab, there's not any indication that they were even willing to sell their food and water to Israel. Moab seems to have just let Israel pass through their land, but there's no record of them engaging them to sell them food and water to help uh, give them what they needed in that situation. They're one step further removed from helping these foreigners in their vicinity. So Esau sells the possessions, food and water to them. Moab says, all right, look, you can pass, but we're not going to sell you anything, all right? We're going we're to keep our possessions to ourselves. But again, because they let Israel pass, because they aren't particularly hostile, Israel's told by God not to bother Moab, but to pass through their land peacefully. But then toward the end of Deuteronomy chapter three, 2, and in the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 3, we're told the story of the third and the fourth peoples that Israel encounters, and the third and fourth peoples begin to get more hostile toward Israel. Both of them are Amorite kings. The third group is Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his people. When Moses sends word to ask for permission to cross through Sihon's land, as he had done with the first two peoples, Sihon responds differently than those first two nations in that he refuses to let the people of Israel pass. He's, He's too afraid to let this group of wandering foreigners even set foot on his property. And what we discover is that because Sihon grasped onto his land, the Lord responds differently to him. Whereas the Lord had allowed Esau's descendants in Moab to keep their land because they had allowed the wandering Israelites to pass through, the Lord responds to Sihon's grasping by giving Sihon's land into the hand of the Israelites. And then finally, after Sihon, we're introduced to Og of Bashan, another Amorite king, and Og takes his land grasping a step beyond Sihon, Og doesn't just refuse to let Israel cross his land, but Og actually gets his uh, warriors together, his army together, and he goes out and initiates war against these wandering foreigners because of his fear of losing his land. Ironically, though, those two Amorite kings, Sihon and Og, who were most adamant about keeping their land, those people who are most selfish and most self-seeking in the use of their land and their property, those kings who we might say grasped the hardest are the two kings who lose the land for which they grasp. Because they won't let the, the poor foreigner even set foot on their land, and because they act with hostility toward the poor foreigner, Yahweh actually gives Og's and Sihon's land as a possession and an inheritance to the holy nation. Now, you may hear those rather obscure stories, stories that most of us are probably not familiar with, and you may think, so what? Uh, What does any of this have to do with Epiphany, and what does any of this have to do with our being a light to the nations? But I mention those two stories to you, or those stories of those peoples to you this morning, because the law of Moses, which was given to the people of Israel to set them apart from the nations, is given to the holy nation quite literally against the backdrop of these selfish peoples. In the law, the holy nation was called to stand in contrast to these paranoid and selfish and even violent nations. And if you read through the book of Deuteronomy in particular, the relationship that the holy nation had with their land, the way that they viewed their land and their willingness to use their land and their property and their possessions to take care of those who did not possess any land, in Deuteronomy, that's going to be one of the key things that sets the, the holy nation apart from the nations. And so with that in mind, I want us to kind of race through Deuteronomy this morning to consider how holiness is connected to property and possessions for the holy nation. First of all, 
It's significant that the law of Moses, according to Deuteronomy, was actually given to the people of Israel on the very land that they had been given uh, that had previously been Sihon's land. It's given to the people of Israel on the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites. Uh, At the end of Deuteronomy chapter 4, just prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments, and this would seem to coincide some way, in some way with Exodus chapter 19 and the call of Israel to be a holy nation and a royal priesthood. In both of these passages, uh, they're, they're both taking place just before the people are given uh, the Ten Commandments. But in Deuteronomy chapter 4, this is how the law and the Ten Commandments are sort of set up. It says, This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules. And that word rules actually has as its root the Hebrew word mishpat, which means justice. And so these are the testimonies, the statutes, and the justices which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan, in the valley of Beth Peor. And then it says, in the land of Sihon, the king of the Amorites. I think the land of Sihon, and the way that he used it, is significant for our understanding of the law in Deuteronomy, and I think Moses thought that as well, and we'll, we'll talk about why that's the case soon. And they took possession of his land in the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites. And so if you put this together with Exodus chapter 19, the context of the giving of the law and the call for the people to be a holy nation is the very land that these selfish kings refused to let Israel cross. It's as if by the context of his words, Yahweh is saying to Israel, you will be holy when you act differently in regard to this land than Sihon and Og have acted. When you use your property and your possessions to bless rather than hoarding and being suspicious of other people. But the significance of the land in Deuteronomy does not end there. At the end of chapter 5, once the Ten Commandments are given, Moses and Yahweh are in a conversation And Yahweh says to Moses in verse 31, Stand here by me and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules, again, the Hebrew word mishpat there, that you shall teach them that they may do them in the land I am giving them to possess. So Yahweh's going to give them the land of the nations, but then he's going to say, there's something different about the way that I want you to act in this land than, than they acted in the land. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. In other words, he's saying, if you're going to stay here, you're going to have to follow my way and be a light to the nations. Otherwise, you'll be removed just as Sihon and Og were removed. Uh, There are two... I think significant things that stand out in in God's words to Moses there. One point, and and we will talk about this over and over again as we look at the law, but one point Yahweh makes here is that their possession of the land is a gift from him. Uh, They didn't possess the land because of their own strength. It was because of God's goodness. But then the other point that Yahweh makes is that if they wanted to keep the land and continue to live in it, they needed to use the land differently than the nation's. Just as Yahweh had used the land to bless and care for them, they needed to use their land to bless and care for the nations. You shall walk in the way of Yahweh, he says, that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. But this expectation that they would use the land to bless others, just as Yahweh had used the land to bless them, was stated even more explicitly when the Israelites received the law the second time. 
after they had worshipped the golden calf in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 9, and Moses, in his anger, had broken the first stone tablets, in chapter 10, the people received the second copy of the law. But as they received their second copy of the law, Moses delivers this message in verses 12 through 21. We're going to take our time to sort of walk through this over the next few minutes. But beginning in verse 12 of Deuteronomy chapter 10, this is what Moses says. He says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Now, he's going to get in just a, a moment into some of those specific commands, but he's essentially saying here, God has selected you and is requiring of you that you walk in his way and obey these commands that I'm about to give you. And then he says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong uh, heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And so there, again, this is a repeated idea. There's the idea that this land that they're receiving is really Yahweh's possession. The people don't really possess it themselves. They're only stewards of what God or what actually belongs to God. And then Moses continues, verse 13. Yet the Lord set his, his heart, so he said, uh, to the Lord your God belong the heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth and all that is in it. And then he says, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. And so again, as we talked about last week, he's reminding the people that they've been chosen by Yahweh to be a holy nation. They're supposed to be different because they've been chosen by God. We saw from the call of Abraham, that their choosing was so that they might be a blessing to the nations. We saw in Isaiah that their choosing was so that they might be a light to the nations. They would show the nations a different way of being. And then Moses continues, he starts to get into some of the specific implications of this in verse 16. He says in verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. I want you, I want you to remember that language we're going to come back to that language when we look at a passage in the New Testament toward the end of our time together. But he says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great and mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribes. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And then I want you to pay attention to this language in context of what we've already talked about. And loves the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. Now, when we read this, we can't forget the context of Sihon and Og. The stories of those two kings form the context of Deuteronomy's version of the law. Yahweh is reminding them that they are a holy nation because they stand in contrast to the two nations who wouldn't share their food and their water and their clothing with the sojourner. If you understand Yahweh's commands in Deuteronomy chapter 10 against the backdrop of Sihon and Og in Deuteronomy 2 and 3, Yahweh is saying again to the people of Israel, I am a God who does not act and do things the way that the nations act, even those nations that you are familiar with and have just finished encountering. I do things in a holy way that is set apart from the nations. And then he goes on to give these commands. Pay attention again in the context of Sihon and Og. Verse 19. Love the sojourner, therefore. For you were sojourners, you were foreigners, this is, is the word, in the land of Egypt. That is holy. Don't just tolerate the sojourner or foreigner, but love him. Verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear he is your praise. He is your God who has done 
for you these great things and terif- these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. And so again, as he does over and over again in the law, Moses is reminding the people that their holiness will ultimately be connected to their use of their property. And again, as we saw last week, he gives them this guidance for holiness as he's giving them this guidance for holiness, he reminds them that these commands are all based on who he has been to them. If they're selfish and they're paranoid and they refuse to care for the poor and the sojourner like Sihon and Og, they will not live long in the land. But if they remember who Yahweh is and what Yahweh has done for them, they will act like him in relation to their property and their possessions. They'll use their land and their property and their possessions to defend the cause of the orphan and the widow and the poor and the foreigner. And in so doing, they'll be a light to the nations. They'll show the nations a different way of being. And God will leave them in the land as a light. When you read through the law in Deuteronomy, there's a lot said about the use of the land. On the one hand, there are commands that relate to righteousness and the people's legal dealing with one another. In the Ten Commandments, for example, the people were forbidden from stealing their neighbor's property. They were also forbidden from coveting their neighbor's property. They were also given commands like the one in Deuteronomy 19.14, which says, you shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Don't, Don't cheat your neighbor by moving the landmark. Again, there's the reminder that the land had been given to them by Yahweh. It had been divided among the families of Israel so that each family had an inheritance of land. The implication is that this was one of the ways that Yahweh was going to ensure that there would be fairness among the peoples. Nobles and kings would not be able to impoverish the people and force them into slave labor because everybody would have their own land to ensure their well-being. And so the commands of the law that dealt with righteousness or the legal parameters for respecting each other's property ensured that this would would remain the case. You don't need a king because he's going to steal your land, and when he steals your land, things are going to be unjust, and we're going to look at exactly how that happened next week when we look at the period of the kings and the prophets. But then beyond the commands protecting the property rights of the people that Yahweh had established when the land was divided among the families of Israel, there were also included as part of the law commands that were related to justice or compassion. These were the commands that addressed the needs of those who didn't possess land. See, even though the people's property rights were protected, they were still supposed to be good stewards of what Yahweh had given them by using their property and their possessions to care for those who didn't have anything rather than hoarding those possessions. And so they were also given commands like the one in Deuteronomy chapter 14 related to the liturgical practice of tithing. Verses 28 and 29 of Deuteronomy 14. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of produce in the same year and lay it up in your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, portion or inheritance or possession, all of those words are used to describe the land in the book of Deuteronomy. And so he's saying, because the Levite doesn't have any of what the rest of you have, the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner or the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. See, what we come to understand is that there was built into the law this sense of local responsibility. The people were supposed to use their tithes 
to satisfy the needs of those within their towns who didn't have possessions. There were also laws related to not taking a poor man's cloak for a lo- as pledge for a loan so that he wouldn't have to go to sleep without warmth. The people were instructed when they freed slaves that they were supposed to furnish the slave, and this is a quote from the law, they were supposed to furnish the slave liberally out of their flock and their field and their wine press. They were supposed to be generous even with their slaves from the fruit of the land that they had been given by God. There were laws about canceling deaths, uh, debts during the sabbatical year so that there wouldn't be any poverty among the people. All of these things, I think, were intended to loosen the people's grasp on their property and possessions. In the closing verses of Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 19, we read this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner or the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, You shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. And so there were were commands in the law that acted as a guide for righteousness, the, the people's legal interaction with one another, to protect the property that God had given them. But there were also commands in the law that acted as a guide for justice and compassion. People were commanded to consider the needs of the poor and the orphan and the widow and the foreigner. Those who did not possess property were to be cared for by this people Yahweh had called to be holy among the nations. The use of their property, their resistance to hoarding, and their willingness to give consideration to those who were poor would be a very significant component of what set them apart from the nations. Think about how that contrasts even with Esau's descendants and Moab. The descendants of Esau sold food and water to the poor wandering Israelites. Moab wouldn't even sell them food and water. They just let them pass on their land. But Yahweh, when he gives the law to to his holy nation, he tells them there specifically that they needed to live with the expectation that they were going to encounter foreigners and poor people. And they were to set aside some of what they had for the explicit purpose of bearing the burden of poor people and foreigners whom they would inevitably encounter. All of this would be a major part of their reflection of God's holiness. Yahweh had cared for them when they were without an inheritance. He had given them out of what was his, and now they were supposed to act in the same way toward those among them who were without an inheritance or without property. Intentionally making space or we might say planning for generosity, was foundational. In a way that was sacrificial, by the way. And in a way that we'll see in a few minutes was to be the first thing that they thought of when they harvested their crops. Intentional making of space for generosity was foundational to the holy nation's holiness. But then the law went even a step beyond the guidance that it gave for righteousness and justice and compassion. What we discover in the law is that the people's relationship to their property was so central to all that Israel was supposed to be as a light to the nations that Yahweh doesn't just tell the people to take care of the needs of the fatherless and the widow and the foreigner among them. No, through his selection of the Levites, 
Yahweh actually places at the center of the holy community by intentional design a group of people who don't possess a single inch of property. The Levites are chosen by Yahweh in a sense to be the gatekeepers to the holy nation's ability to live in relationship to him. The Levites were the priests and those who oversaw the people's worship. The Levites tended to the tabernacle where Yahweh came down to meet with the people. They oversaw the sacrificial system and the liturgies of the people that formed the people in the ways of their divine king. To live in relationship with Yahweh, the people in a very real sense had to go through the Levites. But these people who were at the center of the holy nation's ability to live in relationship to their God were kind of poor. They weren't given any land. And since they didn't have any land, the rest of the community was required to take care of them. Generosity and care for the landless Levite was built into their system of worship. We already looked at the command about tithing. The tithe that the Israelites brought was to be used to provide for the needs of the Levites in addition to providing for the fatherless, the widow, and the foreigner. But the sacrifices served the exact same purpose. At the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 18, and verse 1, it says, The Levitical priests... All the tribe of Levi shall have no portion or inheritance in Israel. Okay, this, this is a recurring theme. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. They don't have any land. The Lord is their inheritance. And this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep. They shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach. Not exciting, uh, but anyway, it was sacrificial for them. All right, this was significant. The fruit, the first fruits, I'm sorry, I interrupted this flow, I'm sorry. Let's, let's go back and read that again. Uh, they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain, your wine, and of your oil, the first fleece of your sheep, you shall give to him. And so notice, the very first produce of the land was to be given to those who did not have any land to bless and to care for them. Notice that it was the intentional design of Yahweh when he set up the law that would distinguish his people from the nations, that they would give to the Lord, what they would give to the Lord would actually be used to take care of the needs of those who didn't possess any property. This was the purpose of the first fruits. This was the contribution that they made before they spent the, fruit, the fruits of their land and their labor on anything else. The holy nation would be set apart. They would lend their light to the nations and show the nations a different way of being in large part through the special concern that they placed on using their possessions and the fruits of their labor to care for those who were without. And again, in the case of the Levites, those who are without are given a place at the very center of the people, acting as a bridge in some sense between Yahweh and the rest of the people. And so, as we wrestle with the implications of epiphany and what it means to be a light to the nations, I think it's important for us to recognize that one of the primary ways that Yahweh brings the nations to his light it, through the witness of a holy nation is through their holy perspective or through our holy perspective of our property. The holy nation shows the nations a different way of being by using what we have received from Yahweh to care for the needs of those who are without. It's no wonder then that when Jesus delivers the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, he talks about how his followers are going to be identified by the way that they use their property 
and their possessions to take care of the poor. He says very plainly with respect to the hungry and the thirsty and the sick and the imprisoned and the naked, whatever you've done for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you've done for me. In whatever way you've moved to meet the needs of these, Jesus says, you have had an encounter with the God of the universe. It's just like Deuteronomy. It's just like the law of the Levites. For Jesus, encountering the God of the universe is in some way connected to an approach to our property that is willing to loosen our grasp in order to meet the needs of those who are without. It's no wonder that when the people are cut to the heart in response to Peter's message in Acts chapter 2, or when they're circumcised in the heart to borrow some language from Deuteronomy chapter 10, it's no wonder that one of the very first things that they do, according to Luke, is to begin to share their possessions. Having been cut to the heart in verse 37 of Acts 2 and then turning to God in repentance and baptism in, in verse 38, Luke notes just a few verses later, verses 44 and 45, all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belonging, belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Just like turning to the law or obeying the law created a holy view of the people of Israel's possessions, turning to Jesus manifested itself in that same holy view of possessions. It's no wonder that as Paul writes to the holy community at Corinth and talks about the Lord's Supper, the central liturgy in the church that's set in place to remind us of the nature of our king, it's no wonder that Paul, as he hears that the rich in Corinth have been ignoring the poor even as they approach the table, he says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 20, look, I don't know what you guys are celebrating, but it's not the Lord's Supper that you're celebrating. You can't possibly be communing with your king because you are neglecting to participate in what God is doing through the world through Jesus. Paul's point is that there's no way that you can be engaged in God's work in the world, and there's no way that you can truly participate in the community of the holy people if you're not using your property to meet the needs of those who are without. And then Paul goes, to, goes on to remind them, as we're reminded this morning, that at the table we come to remember the nature of our king so that we can be formed into his image. At the table we hold in our hands the flesh and blood of our king as a reminder of the fact that he's not a king who grasps, but he's a king who gives. At the table, we're reminded that we serve a king who doesn't neglect the needs of the poor, who isn't annoyed by the poor, who doesn't use the poor like the kings of the nations, but instead we serve a king who identifies with the poor to such a degree that he tells us very plainly that the way that we act toward the poor is very actually the way that we act toward him. In this simple meal, as we remember what he's like, he again calls us out of the way that is common among the nations and their kings and into the way of his holy community through our open hands so that we can be a light to the nations. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.